Snap out of it. Wait, wrong movie. A little luxury for a piece of your soul. Witches of Eastwick Mac and Cheese, next. When your weekend's all spun up and Monday's coming down the pike, sometimes all you need is a little comfort to get you through to Monday. Mac and Cheese Movies, where we believe in comfort food and comfort movies. In the quiet town of Eastwick, where nothing ever changes, three beautiful women are about to discover powers they never dreamed they had. Who should we be looking for? He should be really handsome. Nice eyes. Now, the man of their dreams is here. Jane. Last we meet. To stay for a spell. Who are you? Just your average horny little devil. With the witches of Eastwick. We could do things you haven't any idea. Mac and Cheese Movies. I'm Scotty Coppage. And live from the Yapping Fox. And whenever she's in the mood, it's always the bone marrow. Shannon Coppage. Hey. <laughs> and she found herself thinking thoughts she hadn't entertained since World War II. She thinks she actually blushed. Samantha Langsdale. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about the Witches of Eastwick. In honor of the movie, we made vodka coffee martinis. This is called a pharmaceutical stimulant. And Cherry Cobbler. How do we make them, Shannon? And how'd they turn out? Um, well, I had a recipe for the cobbler. And, and then I just like was like, this seems fine. Because it was like, you need fresh cherries. And I was like, I don't have fresh cherries. I have canned cherries. We and, <laughs> and they were like, and you should just sprinkle sugar and like flour on them. And I was like, I think I'll just dump the can. <laughs> so it turned out very well. <laughs> it's kind of hard to mess up a cherry cobbler. But uh, I don't think cherries are in season right now, so I was like, this will be okay. We'll figure it out. I think you'd have to pit the cherries if... Yeah, you do. Yeah, so and we don't need that. Laziness, uh, pure laziness, and uh, the vodka coffee martinis or whatever. Again, laziness, because we didn't have to buy anything. We were like, we have vodka. What else do we, we we've have? We've got these coffee liqueurs in the cabinet that, you know... I buy because I get susceptible, like to someone selling it, like at the liquor store. We have two bottles. We don't drink it at all. We do. We do it for podcasts. We did the Big Lebowski. We did Kahlua, and then for something else, I bought it like on a random thing. How do we have so much coffee, liquor, and liqueur in our cabinet? <laughs> but I think we got the recipe from your friend, wasn't it, Sam? It it was good. He posted That's it. Good. Yeah, yeah. I kind of lost track of the the thread there so if you got actually something perfunctory out of it i'm i'm glad and i don't feel as bad <laughs> yeah so we did and it was it was pretty easy we have like one of those little shaker things that you make martinis with that we never use i don't know right. like in the corner of the cabinet that's very difficult to get to that you need like a search party to get back in that cabinet and a stool and a stool <laughs> um but it made me feel very classy, very, you know, refined, Bond esque, you know? I was like, I was shaken, not stirred. Um, I made simple syrup. I mean, it is very easy to make simple syrup, but it made me feel really cool as well because I don't make that. Oh, yeah. That, that's chef shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> chef shit. <laughs> so it was good, um, but didn't take very much effort, which was an A plus for our Sunday. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about our film this weekend, The Witches of Eastwick. Um, let's do first taste. When did you first see the movie, and what is your relationship to it? Why is it a mac and cheese movie? Um, well, I'll go first, okay. since we all know my answer. Oh. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> when I first saw it, but, I, I mean, it's been a long time. 
as we're watching it, I'm just like, what? There are things I don't remember. Large, glaring things that I did not remember at all or blocked from my mind. I don't know which, but uh, I don't know. I love their relationship and that it was just always like a feel-good kind of movie. I like Jack Nicholson as well, but it was mostly... Mostly the women, obviously. You know, they're the centerpiece of this film. And, uh, yeah, that part didn't change because I still love their relationship, their friendship, um, and how it strengthens them together. So, yeah. What about you, Sam? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Do you want me to go or you want to go? You go for it. Okay. I didn't didn't see it until a few years ago. I mean, I knew about it. Um, It was just kind of on cable one morning. And I watched it, but I feel like I wasn't really watching it. I think I was probably on my phone a whole lot and stuff. So when I watched it, I, I watched it on Friday when I bought when I bought this movie from Amazon for us to do the podcast. And I was watching it. And I didn't watch it all at once. And then I watched it today with Shannon. And I was like, I feel like I missed at least 30 minutes of this movie. What was I doing? Probably like laundry and making some cereal and that, cooking that, and walking outside. And, and doing <laughs> stuff with the dogs. And yeah, that's... um. Yeah, that's what movies are like now. It's a little bit less focused, well, but uh, you're yeah. You're sitting at home. You're yeah. doing other stuff. You're multitasking. Uh-huh. Home movies are different. <laughs> and not in a creepy way. Like, I'm, I'm filming a home movie. <laughs> that's way. what it sounds like. <laughs> Watching movies at home is different. Let me clarify. <laughs> we don't make home movies. <laughs> we make. Movies with the dogs. We make we make movies with the dogs. We make PSAs on heartworm medication. (laughs) (laughs) Samantha, you're up. Yeah, I I also saw it pretty late. Um, sometime in the last five to seven years, a colleague recommended it to me because I think I had been going on and on about how much I love Moonstruck and Bull Durham, and so he was like, "Why not have both?" Um, and the first time I saw it, I actually was kind of annoyed slash insulted um because i picked up on i mean knowing that it was adapted from john updike i think i kind of went in with a chip on my shoulder and i picked up on what is like quite a a strong sort of misogynist undertone at least at the beginning parts and so i was just like why would this guy give me this to watch like i'm so pissed um not know me at all (laughs) yeah but i agree that i think it was like you realize that the, the film shifts in its focus and it really does um, become more about these women and how they learn how to really figure themselves out and relate to each other. And so that gave me enough motivation to watch it again and again and again. And then I was just like, there's so much to love here and I can choose to interpret this in ways that make me feel better about it, you know, for Is- the lingering is it, is it completely satire, like the over-the-topness of it all? And then um, is the first part, it's almost like it feels like two movies, almost. Um, I feel like that last 45 minutes or so is like a different pace. It's more fantastical. And, but like the first part kind of is kind of a little bit slow for me. Um, I mean... I, we can we can dive right into all of that because <laughs> uh, I mean it's meant to be over the top. I mean he's a demon, you know, <laughs> um, and they're witches, so this isn't exactly realistic, or is it? We don't know. <laughs> but I mean, at the beginning, it's it's very much a product of their imaginations. However, I did find it interesting that even their fantasy, they still like lowered their standards they're like dreaming about it and they're like he's gonna be tall dark and handsome well he doesn't have to be handsome you know maybe just like good eyes and like foreign stranger and really rich and stuff and it's like he's not tall he's not like handsome (laughs) he's very fat you know like um but they're still like taken in by it because all because he like turns the attention on them and what they need and what they want. And they're just like, well, we can overlook all of this because all of those things are very surface. And this is not. This is like underlying meaning uh, to me. And uh, how that they fall into their own trap. Um, yeah. Of that. That's, I mean, one of the things that I noticed that I thought, wow, this is, this is sexist nonsense, um, that... 
quite clearly, Jack Nicholson is like the antithesis to everything they describe. <laughs> yes. Not handsome. He's not. He's not nice or supportive. He's not interesting. You know, in in a sort of independent way from being a demon. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, like, and I think that for me that was difficult to ignore when I saw it the first time because it said to me that you know women when tempted with money and luxury and and given the opportunity to you know, engage in some narcissism, we'll have sex with anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I was just like, wow, that's, this is awful. <laughs> like, yep. this is not what I want. Um, it's like the but, not modern day equivalent of negging, right? You know, yeah, like, let's just yeah. be really mean to her and she'll feel really bad about herself and sleep with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in some ways we definitely have these kind of contemporary equivalents that the whole like industry that that rose up the guy who wrote the book about the game yeah. and like you know you, you employ these strategies that actually break down these women and then they they capitulate um and I mean that for me was one of the things that like John Updike is is so good at writing these horrible male characters they're narcissistic they're abusive they're misogynist and we're supposed to think they're interesting because they have these kind of personal journeys or whatever i can't stand john updike um that just is my personal you know like feeling but i i think that that like why in some ways he got away with some of this and the film gets away with it like you were saying scotty like it feels so exaggerated and it is draped in this sort of fantastic like yeah you're supposed to some of this is supposed to be absurd and that's kind of what he said like when there were early critiques of the book um you know he was just like oh come on this is this is sarcasm this is absurdity like clearly I think women are great but when you look at his sort of catalog of writing and the persistence of these things it's like you you know parody becomes so close to reality that you can't tell it's parody anymore and it's like nah man that's just that's just misogyny like no matter what horns and and witches brews you stick on it um but again I think the more I watched it the more my my interpretations of all of this evolved um not in any way because Updike imagined it to be that way um but because I think film is like this you know magical in and of itself it allows us to do this to interpret differently so absolutely I agree I agree with that wholeheartedly um and that's why yeah I I focus on the women and their relationship with each other not their relationship with him because their relationship with him is everything that is wrong (laughs) with male female relationships um and just relationships in general. So, yeah, but when I focus on them and I look at their journey and how they're, like, their discovery of themselves, because I think that's, like, the only thing that his character is good for, and I don't know that they need him for that, but I guess they thought that they needed him for that, you know, to help them see that, and I don't like that either, you know, because that's, that's kind of through his lens of, like, well, you know, you need someone else, an outsider, to come into your life. And that's that's a pretty typical movie theme, regardless. Yeah. But it shook things up, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think... Well, and whether we like it or not, and this is kind of where I came to, if you think about it as descriptive rather than prescriptive, a lot of women do come into themselves via trauma in personal relationships. So if that film is descriptive of a very common experience for women, then like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If it's supposed to be prescriptive in in so far as like, oh, you need some transcendent male to awaken the goddess in you. Well, yeah, thumbs down. So I choose (laughs) not to engage in that interpretation. I choose to read it as a description of what happens to so many women. Yeah. I'm in patriarchal societies. Absolutely. Well, and like uh, at the very beginning when they're talking about their, you know, when they cast that spell, mm-hmm. uh, let's see, I think it's Cher that said, I don't think men are the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. And then Susan Sarandon says, well, then why do we always end up talking about them? 
And it's interesting to like, because Cher is kind of like pretend or I, I don't know. She says she talks a good game, but at the same time, then she's the one that even though she's brash and putting everything out there, she's like maybe the most vulnerable uh-huh. and the one that looks the most vulnerable, Susan Sarandon, like her character later, you're just like, no, she's kind of a badass, but yeah. also, also extremely dependent on him because she feels like that badassity like came from him, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I feel like that's very much a... Oh, well, this is how this movie's going to go for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, they are introduced as stereotypes, 100%. I mean, again, this is what really rubbed my fur the wrong way. Because mm. you have Michelle Pfeiffer, who is, again, the ultimate, like, symbol of reproductivity. She's fecund. She can't even stop herself from growing zucchinis, let alone babies, right? So this is, like, woman as walking womb. And then you have Cher, who's supposed to be the stereotypical feminist, who says that she's self-possessed and independent, um, and she uses all of this feminist rhetoric, but of course, really the story is that she's just sex-starved, you know, get a dick in her and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And then Susan Sarandon, again, is like supposed to be this sort of, and in one way she's the, the other end of Michelle Pfeiffer, where she gets represented as this sort of barren, dried-up, shrill kind of cold prude right mm-hmm. so they're presented as these just like horrible horrible stereotypes of of what i think sexist men assume women to be mm-hmm. um and that line was again i was like this close to turning the film off i'm like oh I'm <laughs> you know, like yeah if if women are so independent why do they always talk about men well you know, I'm sorry when I'm on a dog walk and I discover that I have like a horribly painful rock in my shoe. I can't really do much else, but concentrate on taking the shoe off to get the rock out. So yeah, women talk about men. Okay. Like, but I think you're right. Like, I think there are so many ways that the movie deliberately moves away from all of that, um, that you're not supposed to cling to those stereotypes as they are initially presented. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, because at some point they they stop letting things happen to them and they mm-hmm. kind of take things in hand themselves. You yeah. Because, I mean, Absolutely. and it's not even just a, a regular dude in this, you know? It's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or the, a demon, I guess. But, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, but they still, like, had that strength, found that strength in themselves. And, uh, you know, I... I I think that um, the powers that they dream of, you know, it's like, that's feminist stuff, you know, like powers that we dream of, you know, like RBG just passed, you know, which is so sad, but you know, like now women can sign for their own mortgage and you know what, we're going to do that before things we dream of, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we've got that power. Thanks RBG. (laughs) You want to talk about the cast, the ingredients? Why don't you talk about that? Because okay. you're better at okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so we so we got Cher, we got Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jack Nicholson in this. Um, who's your favorite out of the three women in here? Mm. Who's your favorite character? That's kind of tough. Cher for me. Yeah. That's kind of tough. Uh, I, I kind of, in some a, a lot of ways, I really like uh, Michelle's. Michelle Pfeiffer, because I mean, even though she is timid and like dances around it a lot, she doesn't trust herself. She's maybe the most uh, um, observant, you know, because uh-huh. from the very beginning, she's like, well, that's weird. You know, uh-huh. we were all thinking about a storm and then a storm <laughs> happened, which yeah. I'm also just kind of like, yeah, that might be wishful thinking kind of deal. But it turned out to be true. And she uh-huh. that comes back later in the film where she's like, hey, what about this you know this is real weird have you guys noticed uh-huh. um I, I do love Cher in this I wish that she there was a little bit more for her to do in the movie I feel like her character doesn't get as much is definitely Susan Sarandon and maybe Michelle Pfeiffer definitely has there's like another element to her but yeah I wanted I like I like her directness and like I want to be that person you know uh-huh. yeah <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I can pull it off but you know like <laughs> 
really, it's not like a normal day to day. Shannon doesn't think she can pull it off. She does pull it off every time. Um, maybe I'm like Cher, yeah. and I, it's got this <laughs> undertone of insecurity. <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't love Susan Sarandon's transformation just see i mean from what you see on the screen it was a, a lot physical and i didn't love that about it it was just like oh yeah. now she's sexy and that's what women should aspire to is being sexy you know yeah i agree with you i think you know you did an awesome job describing uh, michelle pfeiffer's character as, as having that consistent thread of of some kind of um possession of self-awareness and like really good observational skills more generally you know i think shares kind of again trajectory does not really change that much although you know there's like this precarity in the middle where she's kind of overwhelmed by Daryl Van Horn like everybody else but I mean there's some consistency of her qualities as well you're totally right Susan Sarandon's character shifts in every conceivable way that is slightly unbelievable because we just don't have enough groundwork for her other than, you know, she makes a comment about when they're casting their initial spell, she would like a nice ass. I mean, that's the kind of only little bit of spunkiness we get from her. And then she turns into the, the fiery redhead who is going to, like, be the boss babe and, and, you know, kind of positions herself as the, the primary wife witch and... You're just like, well, that's, you know, okay, I guess, again, there's there's this trope of, like, you've always got to watch out for the quiet ones, but I just don't think we had enough evidence to suggest that that was really in her. And you're right, I mean, also her transformation is 100% sexually objectified. I mean, she just mm -hmm. turns into a siren, um, so, eh. And she's, she's the one that I find it interesting that neither one of us were like, yeah, Susan Sarandon, I want to be her. You know? yeah, I, I didn't say that yeah. either. Uh, you didn't say it either, Scotty, I and I'm share. so said, proud of you. Share. You want to be like Cher. Um, and I definitely, I, I appreciate her overalls as well. <laughs> she's like, I've got clothes on. Yeah. Um, are you here to fix the plumbing? Are you here to fix the plumbing? But it's like, Susan Sarandon, yeah, they... they She's made out to, she's transformed into this self-possessed, confident person. But she's also the one that's like, should we ask Darren what he uh, thinks about oh, Darren? Oh, yeah, you know? oh, yeah. it, like, and I, I kind of I miss him. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? What? Like, Well, yeah. and, I mean, at the end, they're all like, yeah, I think about him too. I kind of miss him too. But it's more the idea of him, which is why he's uh, like in the TV, I guess. I don't know. I can turn it off and on. But, uh, but yeah, but... Um, I thought it was interesting. Michelle Pfeiffer, she's the only one that kind of goes into that relationship with her eyes open because she sees yeah. that he already has a relationship with both of the others. Yeah. You know, but he started that relationship with both of the others, like, separately. Neither one of them knew about it. Right. And, uh, and she's the only one that, I mean, she sees that and she still, mm -hmm. like, enters into it. And it's also, I, I don't know, like, I... I'm not going to say that that's like something I aspire to or anything, but I, in this, this context, in this scenario, I appreciate that about her, you know, yeah. like that she was just like, she had the information in front of her as much as she had. And she made that decision and she was, yeah. made that decision anyway. And I kind of respect her for that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it is probably one of the only clear depictions of consent in the film because uh -huh. she, she is also not emotionally or mentally manipulated in the way that he attempts to emotionally, emotionally and mentally manipulate the other two. Well, and like their weaknesses, uh, I think that right. that speaks very clearly to it because like uh, Cher's talking about like snakes crawling all over, very mm -hmm. physical weakness, and you know Susan's ran and everything's <clears throat> crumbling, and I mean she yeah. sees like the fruit kind of like wither and die, and she sees like her skin like herself mm -hmm. aging very quickly like she's withering and dying which I guess would go back to the kind of like barrenness yeah. that they're trying to to portray her character as um but Michelle Pfeiffer it's very much like physical pain you know yeah. like something that is actually physically might kill her and she's the yeah. only one that is in mortal peril even though you know yeah. the others are scary they were very much just a mental manipulation 
Yeah. But they got out Absolutely. very quickly. It was just like, I'm going to leave the room. I'm saved. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what do we think about Jack Nicholson's performance in this movie? I mean, I love Jack Nicholson. I don't like his character, but I yeah. mean, obviously, you're not supposed to. I love Jack Nicholson. Um, uh, He's kind of... Um, he kind of plays a prick a lot. He, he, he does do that a lot. He's a very lovable prick. But he's not like um, sm as smooth as he is in like other movies where he's supposed to be smooth. He's, he's almost like kind of in on the joke with this, I feel like. And I mean, is he typecast? I mean, like something's got to give. I'm thinking, again, of a very misogynistic like character yeah. <laughs> that everybody's just like... Seems to fall in love with, and oh, why did he leave me, or what did he do to me, and how does that make me feel? And I don't know. It's a lot of power to give another person, but I don't know. I don't know. Like I love Jack Nicholson, but a lot of his characters—he's the character that you love to hate. And even in this movie, at the end, I mean, he's in the TV, and you're not like, oh my god, he's back. You're like, they've—they've they've got him under control, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Do I felt like, you know, I don't know if typecast is um, at this stage. I don't know if that's correct or not. I mean, because I think he sets a precedent for himself. I mean, so yesterday, for whatever reason, you know, we have all these international or national holidays. Holidays now is Batman Day. <laughs> so we watched the first Tim Burton Batman oh. And, I mean, Jack Nicholson's performance as the Joker is almost exactly the same as what he does in Witches of Eastwick. There's, you know, one has white face paint. I mean, I think that's kind of... And so, like you're saying, I don't know. At what point do you stop talking about typecasting and do you recognize that there's probably something pretty essential to this performance that's connected to the man? You know, like, I, I also don't... I don't know loads about his sort of in-person love life or demeanor, but from what I've seen and heard, it doesn't stray far from the kinds of roles that he, he typically tends to take up. And so, like, you know, maybe this is, is just where he finds himself most capable of expressing the full range of what he has at his disposal, which I don't know is necessarily a credit to his character. But that's true. I, you know, I think he, whether or not this is what they initially envisioned, and that that's where for me the more interesting question is, I don't know what the filmmakers were looking for, but I suspect that he came in and did his thing and they were like, you know what, this is the way to go. Because this is the kind of unhinged demon energy that, again, there's this assumption around, like, you know, chaotic evil that's going to be attractive to women. Like, I don't know who they're asking, but, but that's with the Joker too, right? He's positioned as this kind of sexual Lothario, despite the fact that he's literally a homicidal maniac. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that in a way he's, he's perfect for the role. If we're looking for someone who can embody that kind of demonic chaos, like, yeah, you need someone who you can let off the leash and is just going to like, cause havoc and he's pretty good at yeah. it so he's pretty yeah. good at it and i think it's a lot charisma that mm. you're just like you know because i mean if you just hated him it wouldn't right. be effective you know you have to there has to be some some middle there or some mm -hmm. something to counterbalance that hatred which yeah. i think is also present in in our heroines here you know because yeah. they do hate a lot of him yeah. Um, but then it's counterbalanced and they stay with him because of, you know, the charisma, I think mostly, and how it makes them feel about themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, which is not something I'm in love with, but. <laughs> yeah. Remixing the ingredients. Bill Murray was cast in this movie and decided to leave it. Um, what do you think about Bill Murray in this role? I don't think he's scary enough. Um, I, I think that on the front end, being this kind of absurd, like, wreaking havoc, shaking shit up kind of guy would work. But Jack Nicholson actually becomes frightening. 
And I think that's necessary by the end. And I, <laughs> I have never seen Bill Murray be frightening um, ever and certainly <laughs> not in that way. So for me, I just don't, I don't know that I would have been convinced. It would have been interesting to see him try though. Cause you know, there's some actors Fair. that you see them play the same role over and over and then you see something completely out of left field and you were just like, you didn't even really want to go to the movie because you're like, yeah, that doesn't seem real. That doesn't seem yeah. believable. And then you're shocked and you're like, wow, they have more range, you know? Mm, and I mean, Bill sure. Murray has a ton of range and it would have been interesting to see if he could pull it off. Yeah. I, th I think the character has to be someone who's got a lot of power and electricity on their own to go up against these three actresses. I've yeah. got, I've got, some, I've got a list of people. I think I could would be good would have been good in this movie. Um, I think Robert Downey Jr. would have been good if he yeah. were like yeah old um, enough. How old was he? Well, well, I'm talking about oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're we're doing this like even we can pick him at any age. Um, it can be Al Pacino, so like, 1971. It can be what like Robert you know. De Niro now. Yes. Yeah, right. Gonna, you know, um, I think Leo would be good in this. I think Oscar Isaac would be good in this role. Yeah, yeah would be I'd say I would take Oscar Isaac yeah. at the top of my list. Yeah. Actually, all of those are potentials. Yeah. Um, it would have, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Are there any, uh, for the other characters? Oh, for the, for the women? I think, mm -hmm. um. I've, I've got a lot. You've got a lot. Okay, well, let's hear them. <laughs> Maybe the one that's in my mind right now will be on this list. <laughs> I've got three from one movie to put in there. Um, Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, Isabella Rossellini from Death Becomes Her in these roles. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Another one of my mac and cheese movies, although I haven't seen it in years. Oh, but yes. Yeah. Maybe that's next time. We don't... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very lovely Well, yeah. Movie. I mean, I think that's the right vibe, too. Mm -hmm. Death Becomes Her is a kind of witchy, weird, mm. confusing your own, like, self-confidence uh, and power with potion yeah and I youth see it. yeah and youth and sexual yeah. uh and attractiveness that, and now a warning and now a warning <laughs> <laughs> um i've also got angelica houston kate yeah. blanchett mm. Charlize theron jodie foster jennifer lawrence natalie portman angela jolie Rachel McAdams for Suki and Tessa Thompson. I would love to see Rachel McAdams do something like this. Um, equally, Jennifer Lawrence. I like you, you, you tossing and Tessa Thompson tossing them in there because the the rest of them are all pretty like they they can be pretty severe and like regal mm -hmm. and <laughs> I like the energy that comes off of Lawrence and McAdams and and Thompson. They. They are so good at playing it both ways, which you need, right? Because you, you've got this kind of feeling of levity, even in some of the most serious circumstances. Yeah, it's a good list. This is, this is um, the director, George Miller. This is his first movie after doing the Mad Max movies. Yeah. And then he, he goes on and directs Babe, Happy Feet, um, <laughs> the Twilight Zone movie segment with John Lithgow. Um, in the airplane freakout like montage, and then Mad Max Fury Road. So I mean, he's that's a pretty that's a pretty good lineup, and like a, like not really sticking to one genre. Yeah, I, I think that that's. I mean, again, when you think about even the even something like Babe and Happy Feet, um, despite them being children's films, those are not without a lot of gravity. I mean, in each of those, you're talking about dealing with pretty devastating, like, scenarios in in terms of youth. So I think that in some ways I can see how there is at least a kind of persistence in wanting to deal with um, fear and sadness and, and trauma. But also, I will say, I, I like that his handling of women in so many of these films is is great, actually. Um, you know, even in the early Mad Maxes, he's, he's doing things that aren't necessarily being played out in other films in the same time period. That's true. Absolutely. 
we want to name a foster dog Furiosa. Yeah, <laughs> great. I endorse this. There's so many foster dog names that have yet to come to fruition. <laughs> and we've only had boys so far. And, and, so. and most of the time we don't get to pick the name. Um, yeah. So we've got like names like Iggy Pop and like kind of all these other names that we want to do for dogs. And then like, you know, we have these badass names, but then, you know, we'll settle on like Coco. You know, like, <laughs> because, because they came with it, you know, we're like, that seems fine. <laughs> oh man. Um, what do we think? So I thought it was, I mean, it's not a giant part of this movie or anything, but I thought Michelle Pfeiffer's pearls were interesting because like they break while they're at the symphony. Uh, or, well, it's not really a symphony. It's more of a, is it a concert? quartet like a or yeah, it's a concert. Recital. There we go. The recital, whatever. Um, but they break and they like trip Felicia and she breaks her leg, which kind of leads oh, to yes. her like being made out to be this like crazy person and kind of gives him Jack Nicholson's character entree into her mental, into her mind. Um, and then later you see, like, I mean, it's, it's after halfway through the movie, she's wearing pearls again. I, you don't know if they're the same ones, but they're in a similar style. And so it's like, I, I didn't completely think through all of that. Um, I was kind of coming in here cold, <laughs> but I did make a note like Michelle Pfeiffer's pearls um, because I, I thought it was interesting because I mean like they're all kind of caught up in Jack Nicholson and how he makes them feel about themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and everything. And I'm, I kind of, that's the point where I think she kind of starts coming back into herself like solely like, less reliant on someone to make her feel like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, anyway, I just... You don't see the pearls the whole movie, you know? She's yeah. wearing them at the beginning. They break. They, like, trip up a potential enemy and truth bearer. <laughs> well, that's... I wonder if maybe um, that's the way to think about it. So, I actually... You know, with, with lots of um, gems and then other kinds of stones that we, well, we wear other materials as stones, like amber. Um, there's qualities associated with them, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you wear a particular type of gem or stone in order to try to achieve um, that quality. And I don't know what the qualities associated with pearls are, but, I mean, we have the sort of saying pearls of wisdom. So I wonder if there is an association um, with, with knowledge or kind of clairvoyance. And in that way, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? If it's Suki, who, as you described, has this kind of possession of understanding and observation throughout the film, and she does have a kind of clairvoyance, um, it's her pearls that break, right? It's a breaking of, of what everyone assumes to be true, everything that they've come to know is normal. The minute everyone recognizes his name, right? Mm-hmm. The pearls break. Um, and yeah, that she wears them again later. Also, um, Felicia, the, the last scene where she finally loses it and spews cherry pits all over the place. She, I think equally is wearing pearls. And I mean, I think, you know, they talk throughout the film about, they kind of, excuse me, liken her to medieval women mystics. And I think that that's, it's a reasonable comparison because often for medieval women mystics, they suffered serious bodily trauma in receiving and giving their visions. Um, and so that she also is pictured at various points wearing pearls. I think maybe this is important, right? This is like some kind of visual depiction of who knows and what they can know. And then also obviously the disruption of what's assumed to be normal. Right. And well, and maybe she was caught up in, in that experience because she didn't choose to put them on back on until later, you know, yeah. uh, that yeah. we know of, you know? Um, so, cause I mean, we assume that she would have had them again to put on, but just mm-hmm. didn't, you know, yeah. wanted to go along with the fantasy with the illusion that was Jack Nicholson's character. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what that made me think of was, I think it's not explicitly brought out, but I think it is mentioned about Adam and Eve. And they talk about, I think they may talk about the tree of knowledge. Um, 
But then, but when you were, we were talking about the pearls and pearls equals knowledge and everything, and I was thinking about that. And then Felicia is not, it's kind of a complicated character because mm-hmm. she's not wrong about their evil coming into the town. Then yeah. when she's talking about some of the other stuff that she doesn't want that's very kind of suburban, you're like, oh, she's, you know. But I mean, how much of that comes from Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. like from his influence there to make her sound crazy, mm-hmm. you know, because... I mean, well, we don't know. We don't know enough about her character, really, and before um, to really know if she shares any of those beliefs. I would hope not. Um, yeah. I would hope that was just spur of the moment crazy, but... <laughs> or, or, or the grocery store scene, you know, was that where all the women turned against um, Susan Sarandon? Is that part of the magic, or is that, like, real? I, I, I mean, real. to me, this... I think that's the interesting balance here um, where you want to think about, I might have questions about the screenwriters and the directors and in terms of what they understood, because on one hand, you don't need magic for any of this to happen. I mean, in a sort of small patriarchal town, it's very sort of easy for women who are vocal and who push against norms to be cast as hysterical and to be treated as if they're crazy. And, you know, women also prop up sexism. Women prop up patriarchy. Um, we wouldn't still have the problem if if lots of different people weren't participating in it, right? So with the grocery store scene, could that be that people are under a spell? Yeah, but, like, probably it's more likely that they're just doubling down on these really conservative norms um, that they failed to investigate in relation to their own sort of individual freedoms. Um, and I think that that's what's really clever about this movie. Again, the way I've chosen to read it is this sort of constant playing with... Um, what 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 is this in terms of its description of real life sexism and how it affects women and we can put it through this filter of magic to kind of give it some humor um and and a little levity but in the end what they're dealing with right is fighting against the sort of attempts of a man to possess and consume everything they are Right. And that we don't we don't need magic to see how that works out. So who knows? I mean, I I think we don't have to make that decision. I like that the film kind of suspends the ability to like come to a conclusion. Is this just a small town or is this a spell like both are equally believable? And I think simultaneously. Absolutely. I never thought the women at the grocery store were under a spell. I just thought that, yeah, that seems right. You know, they were yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> she's come out of her shell. I hate her. Even, you know, even the, that yeah. slut. Even you know? the grocery store clerk was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is my my high moment for Susan Sarandon in the film. Like walking through a grocery store eating pickles out of a jar. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the kind of energy I, I want to embody. That's, I mean, I felt like that was very near to her character in like Bull Durham, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, there she is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even her hair is a little bit different in that scene, you know? And I'm just like, yeah. yep, uh-huh, there she is. She's not paying attention to anyone or their thoughts or feelings until she actually comes to it on her own. She's like, what is this? And then she starts paying attention to her surroundings. Yeah. I like that. I read an article, Lessons in Strength and Style from the Witches of Eastwick. So I'm going to give the the tips here. Are you going to read the whole article? No, no. I'm just going to do the bullet points for the most part. That looks like a long article. It's just bullet points. Number one, (laughs) let your hair reflect your mood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) COVID mood and COVID hair. Right? <laughs> it's, it's been like, yeah, six months still yeah. in this mood. <laughs> Number two, tennis should be played in polka dots. <laughs> or overalls. <laughs> Number three, harness the power of pink decor. And it talks about Van Horn's house. And all sure. the pink balloons. <laughs> yeah. Um, number four, revenge is a dish best served in black. Because they're wearing the black dresses at the end. Is that because they're like mourning the potential loss of him? I didn't pay attention to their dresses. I don't know. That's all I have for the tips. I have some other <laughs> stuff here, but like, yeah. 
It did. I like, yeah, I like all of those. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. This um says the movie feels like it's trying to tell us something, but it holds its tongue so firmly in its cheek that it's hard to grasp exactly what it's saying. And then it says, what a culture has to say about witchcraft, whether in jest or in earnest, has a lot to do with its views of sexuality and power, and especially with the apportioning of powers between the sexes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think this is why I keep banging my pots and pans about how I choose to interpret this. Uh, I have yet to read the book by Updike, but I have it because um, one of my, like, wild dreams is that I'm going to rewrite it. I'm going to reinterpret and do a a wildly um, unfaithful rendition of the book myself um, in an actual feminist way. So because I haven't read his book, I don't know for sure um, just how sexist it is, but I have read plenty of critiques from feminist literary scholars and reviewers at the time that his book came out. And I, I feel confident in believing their assessment of the book and in saying that despite the fact that he's trying to position himself as producing a text that is empowering um, for women. In fact, it's, it's not. And so that I wonder if the film then is a product of the ambiguity that exists between the text and the film, they're two different texts, but obviously the film is um, at least a kind of, it's associated with the novel and it's in conversation with it to some extent. And so I, I wonder how much of that, like that shift in, in what's actually said and then the ambiguity that's left hanging by the end of the film is because it's trying to be its own thing. But at the same time, it can never totally get away from the source material. I don't know. That's that's pure speculation. But I agree. I don't think, especially because the very last scene, they put Jack Nicholson back on the TV. I think it's difficult to maintain a single kind of interpretation of whether or not this is meant to be a sort of feminist critique of sexism or is this an actual like patriarchal stereotype of women um you can never get away from your need for a man you know right right in that, any that, way the shape or form kind of that it, it makes it difficult for sure and then are the are the baby boys going to be like jack nicholson or is their nurturing and them raising them going to triumph over it I don't know. I guess that depends on where you fall on that spectrum yeah, a, of the argument. <laughs> there's, some high, there's some high stakes on that one. There's some high stakes <laughs> on that nature versus nurture. Will he turn into a devil or will he just be your run-of-the-mill witch? <laughs> Find out next time. On... Yeah. I think that they're all boys is another really strong message. Um you know, I think that on the one hand, like, that's in line with everything that they're trying to to show of a kind of a man who wants to possess and consume and perpetuate his own lineage. Obviously, boys are the ideal subject, but it's also very Freudian, this whole idea that women are not complete until they can, and this is penis envy, right? It's like women want to have the phallus and they do that by trying to get husbands and then trying to have sons right this is like trying to fill some kind of lack is only ever settled according to freud by having male sons um so yeah i mean again like I, i'm gonna choose my own adventure here yeah. <laughs> um, and, but but i have to admit it's, it's reading very much against the grain of the film in a lot of ways it is well and i mean they all have daughters you know, like the ones of them that have children have daughters. Oh, There's when he's welcoming to them them to the home, mm-hmm. and they kind of have uh, that little party scene, and it's just a bunch of pink balloons and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. Then at the, at the end, the daughters are like with them at the table while they're like working on homework and brushing the doll's hair, and right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought I was throwing something out there. Maybe I'm not. Okay. I don't know. 
<laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about that, but uh, yes, yes, they were. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Is yeah. is this the best witch movie? I I don't know. Um, I was thinking about this the other day because these are. I don't get me wrong. I watch this movie anytime I feel like it. But these are the kinds of Halloween films that I want. Yeah. Like, I want it to be involving spooky, fun stuff and, like, maybe a little bit edgy, but I don't want to be scared shitless all of the Halloween season. I so I'm trying to think about what other movies like this exist. Um, I think Practical Magic is, would fall into this category. <laughs> That's and, right here. That's right here on the checklist. <laughs> you know, in Check. some ways, I think Practical Magic is a more, like, or let's just say a stronger attempt at a feminist witch narrative than, than Witches of Eastwick is. Um, it's less ambiguous. But, I, you know, what's the, I think Death Becomes Her, like you mentioned, is totally in this vein. Um, I love Witches, you know, the the adaptation of Roald Dahl's story that Angelica Houston stars in. Oh, that yes. is not a feel-good yeah. film, but it yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. That. That's on Disney Plus, I think. I don't think I've seen it. It's great. Um, there's Hocus Pocus. Yeah. There's, there's like that was our that was our first pocket that was the first podcast episode. That was, was Hocus Pocus. Amazing. It was yeah. Well, because it was it was right around Halloween, and I'm not big on like scary movies. <laughs> I don't like them. I don't care because Scotty will be like, it wasn't scary because I'll be like, go see that with your mom because she also <laughs> likes scary movies, not because I'm like disparaging his mother. Right. <laughs> that <was your> mom. <laughs> but he'll be like it wasn't scary I think you'd like it that I watch it and it's I'm scared and I don't like it yeah. <laughs> but yeah so Hocus Pocus was always like a a, a staple of my yeah. Halloween season uh, oh, again yeah. you also you have a redhead a blonde and a brunette we're real <laughs> creative here <laughs> Exactly. All possible hair colors. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Those, anyway. That's my preference, too. I mean, I will watch... I'm more inclined towards kind of like thriller films, but I really hate any kind of violent slasher body. Ooh, no. Well, I don't Hard like... Pass. I don't like when people run around and kill people for no reason. You know? Even... Even if the reasons are bad, I want there to be some logic to the horror movie. And then it's not as scary. It's more of a psychological right. meandering. Psychological and, meandering. You know, so when I get up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, I'm just, I'm not like, ah, the clown's going to pop out of the shower and kill me. You know, it's like, because... There's no reason to that, and I oh, don't want to think about it. They're not going to get me. I'm not a paleontologist. <laughs> right. I need rules in my horror films. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to worry about putting my feet on the floor because they are now exposed to the underside of the bed. I get yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. I'm right there. I'm right there with you. But. <laughs> Do we have a favorite um, performance of the devil in a movie? Hmm. Really, what's the one with Keanu Reeves? The Devil's Advocate. Devil's Al Pacino. Advocate. I like Al Pacino. Mm. That that's one that jumps first to my mind because I did not spend any time thinking about this. There's a movie. I can't go. Go ahead. I was gonna say I suddenly can't think of films with a devil in them. Oh, now I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say um, Elizabeth Hurley in Bedazzled oh. is my favorite devil. <laughs> Have you seen that shit? I oh, haven't seen that either. Brendan, Brendan, I'm writing it Brendan, down. Brendan Fraser's in it. Oh, it is charming. I love <laughs> Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah, it's so charming. Um, I, th I think, like, especially, like, in theater, like, actors want to play the devil and stuff because it does give them a lot of, like, a lot of avenues and a lot of things to try. A lot of devils, like, in the movies usually are not good. So I want them to be charismatic and funny and all this stuff. I don't want them just to be scary. There's, yeah. there's this movie called Oh God, You Devil with George Burns where he's God and he's also the devil. Um, like, it's the same actor, but it's like, they're, it's different characters. Uh -huh. um, it's, that's fun. I, I mean, I like that, I like that kind of rendition. It's like Lindsay Lohan and the Parent Trap. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's the same person, <laughs> but they're different people. 
beautiful. <laughs> you know, okay. interestingly, the that's a frequent occurrence in theater productions and then in one film rendition of Peter Pan. So typically Captain Hook and Mr. Darling would have been played by the same actor as well. And it's very purposeful to think about, like, what does that mean? What is that saying to you um, when you're supposed to have, like, the ultimate villain and a doting father being played by the same person? I remember seeing the movie poster for the George Burns film, but I've never actually seen it. Well, and that's actually, like, I mean, what it makes me think of is that they didn't have a large budget. <laughs> so they were like, why would we pay two people when we can pay one? <laughs> we're getting one star, and we're going to have them do everything. Yeah, exactly. It's like a one-man show. It's a one-man show, because it's like a... In Hamilton, there's one character... In Lafayette. Lafayette, and... Uh, Ah, who killed Alexander Hamilton? I lost it. Aaron Burr? Aaron Burr. I think it's Aaron Burr and Lafayette are like the same character like early same on. Actor. Yeah, the same the same actor, but I hadn't I, I watching that I had no idea. You know? Yeah. And it was like I think it was on the Disney Plus version. Yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. where you could like pause it and be like, Who's this? You know, who's this? <laughs> um, and waiting for it to tell me and I was like, What? It's the same person. But that's exactly what it says to me a little bit is like, hey, you know, they can do both. We can make yeah. them look like different people and seem like different people. He's going to have an accent. You know? <laughs> like, we can pay him once. <laughs> but they probably want to be in the show. Oh, and, absolutely. And if they don't want to be on tour for like the 10 well, minutes or whatever. Well, but also, also, I mean, that's, that's a big credit to your acting chops. Can you yeah. actually like play two different characters and get away with it? And like to where you think of them as two different characters. Yeah. You know, I think that's, I, I, I kid a lot and I'm joking a lot with that, but, and some of it I do think is true. I do think it is a cost saving measure, but I think on the <laughs> actor side of it, it's also like, hey, this shows the versatility yeah. of, of my character. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what so, I think of. <laughs> so the doggy bag, what's your takeaway from the film? What's the legacy? Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I choose to take away that this film can be read as um, a sort of women-centric, fun, spooky story, but ultimately that it is about the necessity for women to come in possession of themselves, but also to do so in community, that bonds with other women are actually way more important um, than sexual bonds with men, even though we're, we're kind of trained to believe the opposite. Um, yeah, that, that's what I, cause, and I think the final scene in some ways, again, it, depending on how you choose to, to watch it, can strengthen that. But like Scotty, you mentioned, they all sit at this table working together um, with their daughters. They've now created um, like a commune in this house. It's, it's built to encourage the thriving of their children they're all very self-possessed, and even at the end, they're kind of given the temptation of maybe going back to to the devil, and they decide, nah, they don't need that, and they turn him off. So uh, that's the way that I choose to, to leave it. For sure. Well, and I like that. I like that uh, going off of the, the house itself, you know, a house that was once known for burning witches you know, yeah. burned the, the patriarch <laughs> yeah. um, demon character instead. And now not only did that happen there, they decided to live there and make it their own. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I, I think like very feminist story shows women can be complete without a man. Again. Yeah. Our, my interpretation, you know, <laughs> and um, even if they, miss them or fantasize about the perfect one because falling for the fantasy without looking behind the curtain can have some terrible consequences like a demon set on possessing you 
to possess yourself instead is the is the goal. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. I just wrote down they didn't need him, they needed each other. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best one. <laughs> And that's how we're okay. promoting the patriarchy. <laughs> you wrote one sentence and we lauded you. Just kidding. Sort of. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show again, Samantha. Absolutely. We love having thank you on here. You, you always do great shows with us. You're seriously like maybe my favorite. I don't know. Maybe this is like a, what I do with my dog and I'm like, I talk for her and I'm like, Reese's peanut butter cups might be my favorite mom because that's what I'm eating right then. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just an in-the-moment person, but I think you're my favorite. Thank you. Well, y'all are definitely my favorite podcasters, so hey, the feeling is mutual. Awesome. Great. Well, I can't I can't wait until next time, the next movie. I think we are already thinking up some possibilities, but for everyone else out there, thanks for listening in. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Mac and Cheese Movie. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just enjoy the show and, you know, live your life as best you can. Well, it's a short life, isn't it? Mac and cheese out.